Hello, listeners. You're not going to hear a regular episode because we have unlocked the Patreon vault for this week. Yes, we have. We're going to be covering a film that we covered last year on the Patreon, but since we are doing some religious horror themes on our Patreon this month, we thought we would release a different type of religious horror for the main feed this week. (laughs) Yeah, so enjoy this episode on Adam Robitaille's The Taking of Deborah Logan. And, uh, you know, if you like what you hear, then consider giving us a little bit of support on the Patreon because you get this kind of content all the time over there. And actually, if you subscribe at the $10 level, which is the highest level, you have access to over 100 hours of bonus content that we've recorded over the years. Holy shit. No wonder I'm so tired. It's so much. (laughs) But yes, so one of the things that you'll notice is that uh, we're going to tell you what we're covering next week up front because you won't hear it at the end. And Trace, this is a bit of a special pick for you. Well, Joe, you really made fun of me last week like a fucking asshole. (laughs) Oh, suck it up, Buttercup. (laughs) I know, for constantly teasing my birthday pig. But yes, everyone, so next week is going to be my birthday episode. And as you might remember, well, this is my second one we've done, but my my pick last year was Zombievers, which is maybe a bit of an off-kilter choice. My pick this year will also be off-kilter. So we are going to be discussing Matthew Bright's 1996 film Freeway. And this is starring Reese Witherspoon and Kiefer Sutherland. And y'all, oh my god. we Y'all are, if you have never seen this movie, you are in for a treat. I do have to say, I put off watching this movie for the longest time because the cover art, the box art for oh this film. Oh god, it's ugly. It makes it look like a low-grade DTV Fast and the Furious sequel. Yeah. And it is not that. I can. It, it is a <laughs> modern retelling of Little Red Riding Hood with some really fucked up shit and a really awesome Reese with a Spoon, like pre-fame Reese with a Spoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm hoping that we're going to break out an accent or two because the southern gothic twang is strong. I get claustrophobic sucking strange dick, Joe. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah, so folks, uh, enjoy the taking of Deborah Logan this week. And we will see y'all next week for my birthday and Freeway. Oh, God. (laughs) Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! Right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking found footage, we're talking naked switchboard fun, and we're talking eating a child's head whole. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking weird Native American snake rituals. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This movie has a lot of interesting things going for it, and every once in a while, just something that makes you sit back and say, oh, oh no. You know, we tend to have a lot, sorry everyone, we're talking um, 2014's The Taking of Deborah Logan, uh, directed by returning Horror Queers guest Adam Robitaille, who y'all may know, Mm. uh, actually Horror Queers Patreon guest, who y'all may know uh, from his directing gig of Escape Room in 2019. 
Mm-hmm. I'm already disappointed that we're not going to get an escape room too before the end of this year. Fuck you, COVID. It sucks. It is really unfortunate. But because of COVID, though, it has made me rewatch this film, which exactly I liked when I. So okay, I have to like caveat this. So okay. When I saw this movie, I had just started writing for Bloody Disgusting. Like, I think I had started, like, October, November of 2014. And so, mm-hmm. like, this movie just come out. And I was, I had my big boy britches on, and I was like, oh my god, like, I get to make a list and whatever. And so I was trying to catch up on all these horror films from 2014. Right, yeah. For some reason, 2014 had a crap ton of possession films. Oh, your favorite genre, too. And my least favorite genre. And it was really bad ones. And I, for some reason, I think I waited for this one. Like, I watched this one towards the end of my marathon. And so by the time I got to this, I was like, I am over possession movies. I have seen right. every fucking, like, and, and even some found footage that year, too. Because, again, this is 2014. I liked it fine. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, it's better than some of the crap I've been watching. But I wasn't blown away. The six years since have been kind to it. Because on today's rewatch, I actually really enjoyed this movie a lot. Mm-hmm. This was a first time watch for me. I had heard of it, but only tangentially. Like, it's one of those things that kind of pops up when you see people making lists of, hey, recommend a found footage film to me. Really not my bag of mm-hmm. subgenre for horror films. So I'm going to try not to, you know, shit on it. But generally, I don't watch a lot of found footage films. So I hadn't really taken notice of it. So it was on my radar. Obviously, I hadn't seen it. And then I watched it for the first time for this. And I was genuinely surprised. I liked a lot of this. It was mostly the fan footage stuff that left me a little bit cold. Like, I almost mm-hmm. wondered what this film would look like if it were just a traditional horror film. Um, <sighs> I mean, I know, like, I'm asking people to say, oh, well, just erase the entire technical side of this film. But what I mean is that the story is strong and I liked that. Like I liked the characters and I connected emotionally to the material. Yeah. And it was when the film becomes a more standard found footage thing that I was like, yeah, okay, it's fine. No, I agree. I don't have super strong feelings on found footage. I mean, like, it's kind of a thing where it's like some of the things people complain about with found footage. I'm like, yeah, but those are it's like a trope. You know, it's like someone taking a slasher movie and saying, Oh, well, I hate that there's naked girls getting killed, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I get it, you know, that I the tropes for found footage either work for you or they don't. Mm-hmm. But when you say removing the aspects, so one of our patrons, actually, Sergio, he mentioned on Twitter today where he was like, oh, like, it just, like, it feels very heavy-handed, like, all the stuff with the Alzheimer's. And I was like, yeah, but, and because I had forgotten also, like, what the angle of the found footage was. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's, you know, a graduate student doing a thesis, a thesis film for a PhD. Right. That particular aspect of it kind of helps me overlook some of the framing of stuff, like especially in the beginning when they're doing like the Alzheimer's tutorial. And I was like, oh, like, because yeah, we are Mm -hmm. essentially watching a student film and those aren't going to be the best. But then on another level, I'm like, okay, but then is it also meaning that I'm overlooking some shoddy aspects of this film because I'm like letting that narrative concept give some bad aspect of this film a pass, if that makes any sense. I do think that both sides of that argument are correct, because at the end of the day, all fan footage films have to do a little bit of explaining as to why people don't just set down the camera or like, you know, hey, why are we videotaping this whole thing? Like, particularly in the time frame that this film is made, where it's still very much, okay, we need to have a rationale for this. It can't just be, this is a YouTuber and they're documenting every fucking moment of their waking existence. But you see, though, like, I actually thought this movie does a really good job of telling you why they're still filming. I mean, even in the end, like, when they're in the mine, Sarah says, I need the light. And so they're using the camera for the light, not for the film. 
And yeah. so that made sense. But then when they were using the night vision, and I was like, well, why the fuck isn't the person who has the shot, like, has mm-hmm. the injector needle, Going the first. one holding, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the one holding the night vision camera, because they're the ones that need to see this shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of things you definitely have to overlook, but I like the general conceit that this is almost a medical thesis, and then Mm -hmm. it starts to uncover something, and it almost becomes more of an investigative, like it almost has that J-horror feel to it, where it's like, oh, we started down one path, and then we realize, oh, there's a mystery to be solved here, and then the rest of the film sort of takes that on, and you get the impression that Mia just gets swept up in this, like, not only does she care about Deborah and Sarah, but she's also kind of like, holy shit, this is some juicy stuff. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And she's like, oh, well, like I, whether or not this becomes like the actual like end result of my film, like this is awesome. Like I could uncover something crazy. I do think it's kind of funny with the timing too. I think it was what I was trying to say earlier though. Was like we tend to have a lot of luck with our timing, like in our programming of like, oh, like these things kind of relate. Hmm. I messaged you today saying, oh, like this is kind of weird. This connection to Evil Dead, the Evil Dead remake, because both of those films take a possession angle, like but first go through the lens of like, oh, we're dealing with an, a disease in yeah. Evil Dead's case with addiction, in this case with Alzheimer's, and that's why like people don't buy into the possession immediately and there's also a whole thing with like scratching on a book and like getting a hidden message and whatever but Mm -hmm. i think what you're saying is that we're amazing and i just you know toss my hair back a little bit because (laughs) we're awesome but but another one too is because we just just talked about poltergeist 2 which also has some native american like rituals going on (laughs) so it's just a well that the horror genre loves to dip back into oh sure i mean as you mentioned, there are tropes for found footage, there are tropes for possession, and there are definitely just broad thematic pieces that the horror genre loves to pull in. I mean, I think one of the things that most struck me about this film is that it's not some young hot chick in a white nightgown getting wet or prayed over by creepy old religious dudes. Mm-hmm. And for that, I'm going to give 10 Hail Marys. <laughs> um and yeah of course obviously y'all if you haven't seen this film uh we are gonna be spoiling the fuck out of it but hopefully you've seen it um it is streaming for free on tubi um everywhere else i think you have to pay for it but um i watched it on tubi today with some ads you love tubi i mean again my go-to is amazon prime or hulu or netflix because i'd rather not have the ads but if it's three bucks everywhere else but it's free on tubi fuck yeah go to tubi Mm mm-hmm Okay, well, on that note, then, I think we'll just kind of dive in. Oh, and obviously, you know, big queer element in this film. Not only do we have a queer filmmaker in Adam Robitel, we do have a queer character in Anne Ramsey's Sarah. And I'm going to assume Sheriff Tweed? Oh, yeah. 100%. (laughs) I mean, let's face it. This film is so obviously made by a very aware gay creator because this film is entirely dominated by strong interesting complicated female characters and then we've got two lesbians yep this is obviously not a straight man because it's almost like gone overboard with making sure like hey i'm not giving you shitty white men it's giving you a plethora of interesting female characters and queers and when we get to the moment when she like basically tells the crew about like when her mom caught her with a girl I actually mm-hmm. want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, obviously, we'll talk about it. But because um, I think that informs gay viewers or queer viewers about this character so much more than it would for a straight viewer uh-huh. because it, it's so minimal, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. It's one of the reasons that this movie gets praised. Yeah, for sure. It, it doesn't grind to a halt to be like, by the way, I'm a lesbian. Yeah. 
<laughs> I honestly kept waiting for her partner to show up and she mm-hmm. never does. And you're kind of like, yeah, because she's just at home taking care of mom and shit is hitting the fan. We don't need to introduce somebody who's maybe just going to get killed or something ridiculous like you would in a worse film. Right. Okay, so yeah, this was released October 21st, 2014. Um, I don't think it went to theaters at all in the States, but it did get released in Belgium, the Netherlands, Peru, and Russia in theaters. Okay, interesting. I know. <laughs> uh, it made $407,782, so good for that. I don't have a budget number. Um, I imagine it's pretty low, because this is a very, um, I mean, it's found footage, you know. Mm-hmm. They can do a lot with very little. <laughs> Yeah, even like the highest budget fan footage films tend to not have budgets over a couple million dollars. Right. Well, and I did want to point out too, so, and this might not be a good thing for this this crew. So Adam Robitel, as we mentioned, he he directed Escape Room. He also directed the fourth Insidious film, which is The Last Key. Not a great movie, but it's directed well. I think he's a fine director. Okay. But he co-wrote this movie with someone named Gavin Heffernan. Mm-hmm. They... He's a Canadian. Yeah. Yay. And maybe also gay. I'm not really sure. Couldn't tell. I tried to do a deep dive and couldn't find it. So, I know. I did you know, too. And yeah, I'm, I, I, think, <laughs> I think the answer is yes, but I could be wrong. But I wouldn't be surprised. But yeah. They're also, and this is the funny thing too, because I, I honestly get Adam Robitel and Christopher Landon, who directed the two Happy Death Day movies, confused because they both have ties in the Paranormal Activity franchise. Right. Yes. Because I think Adam Robitel also wrote another one. Didn't he write the entry that Chris Landon directed? No. no so let me do landon first and then i'll sure so landon wrote two three four and five and five being the marked ones and it, it may be a co-writing credit on some and a solo on others but anyway but he did direct the marked ones which is actually pretty good okay four is the one that people tend to hate but the worst one is the sixth one which is paranormal activity the ghost dimension which had four writers Ooh. two of which were adam robitel and gavin heffernan okay hmm so it's basically rewrite city, pretty much. I mean, and I'm wondering because they're listed last. I mean, there's two other writers and then them. Ghost Dimension would have come out a year after Deborah Logan. I mean, like almost to the month. So I don't know if maybe because they're already in the Blum. Well, no, they weren't even in the Blum household. But maybe they saw Deborah Logan and were like, "Oh, can y'all do a brush up on this with some like you know clever scares?" Because you had a found footage movie that came out last year and it did really well for the VOD right. circuit. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a tight timeline, so that may not be actually what happened. Because, I mean, again, this comes out, and then a year later, Ghost Dimension does. But I can't imagine Ghost Dimension, which is a huge piece of shit, (laughs) took that long to make, or market. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, we're looking at a runtime of 90 minutes for Deborah Logan, and we have a Rotten Tomatoes score of 89%, with an average score of 6.1 out of 10, and then a Letterboxd score of 6 out of 10. Yeah. I'll admit, it was higher than I expected, but when I actually saw the film, I feel like it's justified. Yeah, I mean, honestly, my score went from a 3 out of 5 to a 4 out of 5. Yeah, mine was also a 4, principally based on the strength of the first, like, half to two-thirds of the film. No, I I fully agree. And there's still things that I like in the the last act of the film. It's just, yeah, because we've seen this done so many times, it is a lot of been there, seen that. Yeah, unfortunately. And it's, it's hard not to compare when so much of it feels that familiar Mm -hmm. and i think that's the reason that i gravitated to the first half is because it felt like a really fresh take on a fan footage film that i hadn't seen before yeah i i agree i'm conflicted because i actually like the backstory i like the reveal Mm -hmm. of what's going on it's just i feel like there's too much more film after the reveal (laughs) Yeah, it drags a little bit more than it needs to. Off air, you and I both agreed that this could have been trimmed down a little bit. I'm never quite certain 
who makes the decision about how much do you want to edit? Like, is an 85-minute film better than a 90-minute film? Because this film felt like just a bit of a tighter edit would have made it that much more of a stronger film. But here's the thing. You also have to look at who's editing. Because if it's the studio looking over this, they're going to say, cool, trim something from the boring beginning because we need like more right. scares in the end of it. Whereas for me, I'm like, no, I'd rather have more in the beginning and you cut something out of the end of the movie. Yeah, trim the part where we can't see jack shit. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I was honestly surprised they, they hold the, the girl swallowing shot for so long because everything before that is like all over the place. <laughs> oh, I think they knew what they had with that because <laughs> let me tell you, when I was looking for images to announce our possession theme on Twitter and social media, the number one image that fucking comes up is that shot. Wait, did you not know that that that, that was a thing in this movie? did not oh good i spoiled myself <laughs> so i hope all of you patrons appreciated i took a hit for this yeah no that, that's i think that had that shot not been in this movie i don't think we, it would be talked about as much among circles obviously not having it doesn't make the film worse for me but it's such a memorable visual set piece that you're like oh shit like yeah that's the movie with yeah. the snake mouth <laughs> yep 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 <sighs> okay well um that's all i have like, the composer for this film hadn't really done a lot. The cinematographer has done a bunch of stuff, but his, like he's done mostly a bunch of Tosh.0 episodes. Make of that okay. what you will. <laughs> I will not, thank you. I will say, though, that um, Heffernan and Robitel also edited the film. Okay. So, it wasn't a Blumhouse film, but it feels like it could have been a Blumhouse film, you know? Right. And do you know if this was a Netflix acquisition? Because I saw a bunch of different interviews that kind of suggested people had discovered it there. Not an acquisition. It definitely went on Netflix. If, I think if it was an acquisition, it would still be on Netflix. Uh, yeah. But okay. it's not, on, in, in the States at least. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Because it seemed like it just came out of nowhere, and then all of a sudden, all of the interviews are from the exact same time period, and I couldn't figure out how it is that people came to find it. For me, because one of the lists I always did for Bloody, um, I never did Best and Worst. I did Most Surprising and Most Disappointing, which of course is like hinging on your expectations, so it was more of my personal picks. But yeah, th this was on my Most Surprising of 2014, because it was one of those where like, oh, I walked in, like, again, after watching a bunch of shitty-ass possession movies, and then I get this, mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay, good. This surprised me at how it wasn't total shit. <laughs> there is quality to be found out there. Yeah. I think that was the same year as the Vatican tapes. Nope, nope, nope. That was later. Sorry. Um, I watched a lot of bad movies. <laughs> I mean, welcome back to horror, unfortunately. <laughs> There's a lot of shit kicking around out there, which I think is one of the reasons why when people see something that they like, they shout it from the rooftops. And this was one of those films, right? I mean, yeah. I said I was watching this on Twitter and I got... 60 people come out and be like i love that movie it was so surprising mm -hmm. it was unexpectedly great a couple of people didn't love it but for the most part this is a very well received film yeah and i think like i mean again flaws and all i think that's something we'll talk about once we get into the plot but um yeah th th there's there's a lot to unpack here and it's always one of those things too where i'm like oh, i don't know if i'm really qualified because i don't have the life experience of seeing someone through alzheimer's i don't have a lot of knowledge of Native, Amer Native American lore. like So I'm just going through this as me, and it's, you know, we all experience films differently. No, I think there's enough here that even if you don't have a personal connection to it, you can understand the choices and follow the story fairly easily, like emotionally, I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. But I did try to do a look to see if there was anybody who went after the film because it's not a realistic depiction of Alzheimer's. But most people seem to forgive it because it uses the Alzheimer's 
almost as an entry point, and then it very clearly at one point says, this is no longer Alzheimer's. I am not equating what is happening with a person who is suffering from the disease. That was, okay, before we get into it, and that was my question too, and if this is a stupid question, I apologize, listeners. So are we to believe, because she has the guy buried in the backyard, Mm -hmm. and Sarah mentions at one point, oh, like, it's when she started getting sick that she was weak enough for him to possess. So are we to believe that she does have Alzheimer's and then like obviously all the crazy shit was just the possession or was she just starting to get possessed because she was just getting old and they just thought it was Alzheimer's I definitely took it to be that she had early onset Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. and that because she had the disease was his ability to take over her when she was like digging around in the yard one day kind of deal got it because the doctor definitely explains Like, there's one part where we see a scene in the hospital, and Sarah is talking to Dr. Nazir, and she basically says, I thought you said we had two to three years, which to me suggests, okay, there was a preliminary diagnosis that happened here, Mm -hmm. and then because of the possession, that timeline has been thrown out the window. Yeah, because she mentioned something, and I didn't write down the exact terminology, but, like, about, like, the proteins or something in her brain, like, they had increased dramatically. So Mm -hmm. the possession is also, like, physiologically affecting the chemical, her brain chemistry. Yes. Yeah, it's accelerating it. Yes, yes. And we'll, well, we'll talk about it when we get to the end of the movie, because I do have thoughts on where we leave Miss Deborah Logan. <laughs> hmm Yeah, it's not the happiest of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's dive in here. So we have a PhD candidate, Mia, played by Michelle Eng, who is filming her thesis project on Alzheimer's, along with Gavin, Brett Gentile, and cameraman Louis, played by Jeremy DeCarlos. Oh, and I actually want to point, I just want to read, so we do get the title card, like the text at the beginning of the film. And yeah, it's basically, uh, the following film includes a partly edited medical documentary, outtakes and surveillance footage from the scene of the crime. October 12th, 2013, medical student Mia Hu and her documentary crew travel to eczema, which, okay, Virginia. It's like eczema. Uh, Yeah. Eczema, I'm sorry, but it's eczema. Virginia, to meet with Alzheimer's patient Deborah Logan and her daughter, Sarah. Yeah, so right off the bat, it's kind of telling you, okay, there's going to be that strong medical component, which I think becomes very clear early in the film where you get this breakdown, like, here's what Alzheimer's is. It actually reminded me a little bit of when we watched Scream Queen, where it's like, okay, and now I'm going to tell you what the AIDS crisis was. So in that way, it it did feel a little bit like a legitimate documentary to me. But but again, knowing like what it is, it's this fucking like 27, 26 year old grad student doing a thesis film. Like, yeah, of course, she's... She's educating you. So Mm -hmm. it does feel like the film's talking down to you to be like, you don't know what Alzheimer's is. Here you go. But I I buy that someone like that would do that in their film because it's educational. That and I mean, I hope it doesn't sound like we're shitting on young filmmakers either. But (laughs) the other thing is that it helped to explain to me why Mia was in front of the camera and so active in the story. Because part of me was like, bitch, most documentarians do not get invested to this degree in their story. And part of it was I wondered if it was meant to infer, oh, Mia can't distance herself from her subject because she doesn't have that that experience. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Also, I do want to point out, I actually needed the, the tutorial on Alzheimer's because my only knowledge of the disease really is like, oh, it deteriorates your brain. Right. Which is a real simplistic explanation of the disease. So just getting that at the beginning, I was like, okay, cool. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah, you're like, oh, okay, I can naturally benefit from this, and it's part of the storytelling. <laughs> Personal question, though, have you ever, like, do you have any family members or friends or friends of family that have, like, gone through it that you've, like, witnessed deteriorate like this? 
I don't have any family members who have had Alzheimer's. I've suspected a couple have, but there is a distinction between dementia and Alzheimer's. Yeah. And I think I've actually had experience with dementia where it's it's more of that general forgetfulness as you get older, as opposed mm-hmm. to like a severely mentally deteriorating and even physically like the shots in this film where you see people and they kind of start to look a little bit like husks of yeah. former people. That's, I think, more Alzheimer's, whereas dementia is just people, you know, oh, I left something on the stove and I burnt down part of my kitchen. I think the factoid for me that really shook, shook me the most, and it was paired with those images of Alzheimer's, like what I'm assuming are real life Alzheimer's patients. Yeah, I almost hoped it wasn't because I was like, Ugh, this feels icky. Well, and yes, I agree. And I think the film handles it tastefully. But then, of course, when you get into the aspect of possession, it's like, okay, well, then you're using this very real disease as like a gateway into this possession film. But then it's like, well, right. aren't you doing the same thing in Evil Dead when it's through drug addiction, which is also a very serious disease. So hmm. I, I can see com- arguments for both sides where it's like, oh, this is offensive or it's exploitative. I mean, they, they even like fucking call that out in the beginning when, De- when Deborah's like, I don't want to be exploited. Yes. Uh, or exploited, sorry. <laughs> yes. And I mean, that's why I think we also have Harris. I mean, he's obviously involved in the murder subplot that mm-hmm. leads to the conclusion. But he spends the majority of the runtime of this film saying, you're exploiting this woman who I care about. Get the fuck off of her property. Well, which they are at the, by the end of the film when at the most inopportune time, Mia's like, I was lying when I said my grandfather had Alzheimer's. I know. And Sarah's like, shut the fuck up right now. I'm just like, you now? You <laughs> bitch, now, now is not the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, but it, it, it was um, it was when they say that oh, when the brain like doesn't remind you to swallow, and so like mm. that that is when I was like ooh, 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 it sucks. Yeah, it's rough. Alzheimer's is actually one of my top fears in terms of the ways that I will die because I, I, I think it that. just sounds like the worst, right? Yeah. Okay, this might sound shitty, but on the bright side, like at a certain point, you you wouldn't know. I think honestly. And again, if this sounds insensitive, I apologize, but I do think that Alzheimer's is probably worse on the family than it, and friends than it is on the, 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 the victim itself. Not to say it's not bad on the victim itself, but I mean, that, that's the point of this documentary, right? Yeah, because it's actually all about how Sarah is dealing or coping with her mother's decreasing health. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. it does a good job. And that's kind of what I found the most interesting. But then again, once we get into the murder stuff, yeah, it kind of drops that aspect i mean sarah's still like front and center of this film but it loses that aspect of it when you lose the alzheimer's aspect of it this is true yeah so if you check on robitel's interviews that he did with this film he does talk about how he made this a very deliberate construction like he wanted to look at using some kind of illness where people deteriorate and use that as like an analogy or an introduction to a possession film like he thought that it was a bit of a clever way to do this but he picked alzheimer's because some of the symptoms do match what people traditionally associate with possession right where it's like people acting a little bit differently a little bit kooky you know they're wandering around they're maybe taking off their clothes they're speaking in tongues or they're you know they're having difficulty distinguishing reality from fantasy or something like that so he thought that it was a clever parallel but also a good emotional way to ground the story he wanted to tell he wanted to talk about this older woman who is losing her mental faculties yep yeah i think that's refreshing like he clearly put the time and energy into it and i think the reason that maybe the back half of the film doesn't work as well for people is because it does lose that emotional residence. 
Well, and actually, listeners, and I know we normally save questions for the end of the podcast, but yeah, I mean, let us know, because I, I can guarantee there are some people that prefer the second half, because it gives them what they're wanting out of a found footage movie, whereas the first half of this film isn't as preoccupied with that. Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested to know if people went into this and found the first half boring. Mm -hmm. Or if they were like, oh, I went in, and then suddenly I was invested in this mother-daughter drama that I didn't expect. Yeah. Because that was me. I was like, what is this? Oh, wait, I care about these two women. No, and I honestly think that when I watched this back in 2014, I think that I wasn't as compelled by the family drama um, in the first half. Interesting. So, okay. age helps. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And some distance, right? Distance, yes. I mean, sorry, not that younger people can't understand things. I mean, like, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> me, knowing how I was in 2014. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we are introduced to Deborah Logan, who is played by soap opera vet Jill Larson. 700 and some odd eps of All My Children. Good for you, girl. Right. Get that money. Get that career gig. <laughs> she apparently had never seen a horror film. You wouldn't guess it based on this film, though. I actually do love her performance, and I love the way they, like, slowly, like, disintegrate her face. Not yes. disintegrate, but, like, she just, like, gets worse and worse looking as the film progresses. Mm -hmm. Well, as I said, when I was looking up images for this film, they're all from the back half. So when the film opens up and she looks like a fucking senior soccer mom, yeah. I just thought, oh, okay, wow, we're really going to get to see her go through this. But I was worried because I was trying to figure out how are they going to, for lack of a better word, torture this actress. Yeah. Because like I'm used to seeing Jennifer Carpenter go through the motions in mm -hmm. a possession film. It's always 20-something hotties who get possessed. Ooh. So to see like a 70-year-old woman go through was a really weird experience. And I won't harp on this too much, but I, I think maybe that's how I, they, we make these possession movies or found footage movies just better for me. Because like I love Exorcism of Emily Rose. But sure. it's basically a legal drama that has a few scenes of possession in it, you know? Mm -hmm. This has possession in it, but it's also, like, primarily focused on the Alzheimer's aspect until the last act of the film. So right. that helps it stand out for me and make me appreciate, makes me appreciate it more. Also, Emily Rose is, like, legitimately scary. <laughs> I haven't seen it in forever. I just remember everybody and their dog talking about the physicality of Carpenter's performance, and it is off the chain it is amazing but um, anyway <laughs> sorry back to deborah anyway, Logan. yeah <laughs> okay so we meet deborah and we also meet her daughter sarah who is played by ann ramsey speaking of dexter <laughs> she appears in that and a bunch of other tv shows but she's very much a character actress yeah i mean she's been in the l world a couple l world <laughs> imagine <laughs> that should be that should have been the sequel series the l the world. lesbian world <laughs> ah, yes it's just lesbians have taken over the entire world yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, yeah, because they, they did a, a sequel season, didn't they? Like like last year? They did, yes. Yeah. Um, but some of our more seasoned TV viewers though, might know her from Mad About You. She was a main role in that for a long time. And I haven't seen it probably in, a, I mean, at least 20 years. Because my parents watched it, but I was like, you know, around the age of five when that was really in its heyday. It's not really a show for five-year-olds. No. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I was just like, Paul Reiser, he's that asshole from aliens i don't want to watch a show with him <laughs> too true <laughs> yeah so they're doing this documentary in part because it's mia's thesis project but it's also because sarah needs money to keep the fucking house mm -hmm. which again sink those emotional hooks into me adam robotel because yikes yeah i mean i think it's again it just provides another reason for her to be like keep filming because we need this grant money yeah 
I do love the scene. Right, so there are some technical aspects of the film where I'm like, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Specifically in the scene when we see, like, the cameras are outside and we see Sarah and Deborah inside talking. And I'm like, mm-hmm. how can they hear what they're saying? They're not wearing mics. <laughs> <laughs> they paid for a lip reading specialist after the fact. <laughs> I will say that um, I, I watched this with subtitles on and it actually like a Me lot too. of things that you could not hear, the subtitles filled in for you. Oh, I've 100% gotten onto the old person train where I'm just watching most everything with subtitles these days. Yeah. Because it really helps to clarify, oh, I missed something. There it is on screen. Like, I'm not yeah. missing any dialogue anymore. But there's also portions of this film where they interject a score. And I'm like, why is there a score happening during this jump scare? <laughs> mm, because it'll scare you more. Because in yeah. horror films, the music is actually super important. <laughs> right. But I mean, like, the whole thing with found footage is that, you know, they don't have that. And that's it. Yeah. So you have to rely on the visual aspect only or like a sound happening, but not music. So yeah, not typically <laughs> when there's like two or three jump scares that come with a score in this film and it's the only time there's a score. I'm kind of like, OK, well, you could have said this is a partially like. Yeah, like we release this as a documentary similar to the documentary that we see in this film. Yeah, kind of like that. I don't know. I'm nitpicking. But, you know, if you're going to do that footage, you got to keep that in mind. Yeah, particularly because as viewers, we are a bit more conditioned to focus on that kind of stuff, too. Because mm-hmm. we're like, okay, I want to know why haven't you put the camera down? What was the aftermath? Like, how did people splice this together? What format are we meant to believe people right. would consume this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we get like a, a kind of info dump about who these women are. You know, we learned that Deborah was widowed when Sarah was two, and she made ends meet by operating a successful switchboard business. Mm-hmm. We meet her neighbor and lifelong friend, Harris, who is played by Ryan Catrona, and he is deeply possessive and not at all a fan of this documentary crew being there. And nope. we also eventually come to learn that Sarah is a partnered lesbian who has moved back home to care for her mother, and she's more or less told her girlfriend oh, I'm just going to be here for a few weeks, but really she's kind of in it for the long haul. Yeah. I did want to point out the one scare that I really liked is one that doesn't come with a score, but it's when the the, the cameraman sees her dig up a snake and Mm -hmm. then he turns and like Mia's yelling at him saying, you're supposed to work on the edit. And he turns back and Deborah's like right there. Yeah. That worked really well for me. I'm again, it's Mm -hmm. simple, easy, like obvious found footage shit, but I like it. But yeah, so first, so when Sarah, so this is day 18, because they do some counting of the days, and that actually I liked, because I think by the end of the film, we're on day 60. Yeah. And thinking about, again, going through, like, so like we're only seeing, like, a glimpse of the crazy shit happening in this movie, and so... Right, but it's also, it's still also over two months, so these people would right. be ragged. Yes. But I love that whenever, so we hear Sarah, like, yeah, you know, talking to her girlfriend, she mentions a U-Haul, so of course we get, mm-hmm. like, a lesbian U-Haul <laughs> reference. <laughs> I did roll my eyes a little bit at that one, but I I let it go. Gay screenwriters. Or at least one. I don't know. But, yeah. So, basically, we're told that Deborah found Sarah and her friend Anne Mm -hmm. kissing in the shed when she was 10 years old. And then she shipped her off to a boarding school. And that's kind of a thing where it's like, I mean, we don't really get much more information about Sarah's personal life outside of this one bit of dialogue. And it informs her character so much and the relationship she has with her mother. Yes. I am actually curious to hear from both queer and straight listeners to know, like, what did you get from that? Because as someone who did grow up and, like, had kind of a contentious relationship with my parents post-coming out, like, I was like, oh, 
I get this relationship now. Mm. Like, I get the kind of, like, dynamic you have. And if you don't have something like that, I'm wondering if it if it really fed that much into you or if it would just felt like a throwaway line. Uh, it definitely can feel like a throwaway line. I picked up on it very strongly, in part because, I mean, I knew that Sarah was a lesbian. It was on her sort of cheat sheet as one of the reasons yeah. why we would cover this film eventually. But I think it could be removed and the film would more or less still operate. But I think our investment in Sarah as a character and the relationship that she has to Deborah, it explains the kind of... I don't want to say love-hate because I don't think there's hate, but there's no. a tension in their relationship. If you have, like... When I, when this happened to my parents, like like I mean, I, I think I said this before in the podcast, but I, I got drunk when I was like twenty five and told my parents like all the things that I remember them saying to me after I came out, and they didn't have any recollection of those specific things they said, but I did because I was fucking like seventeen years old and it was imprinting on my brain. Yeah, I mean, granted, we've made peace since then, but like that's still a memory that I have of like feeling completely utterly rejected by my parents, yeah. and so you have Sarah, who again she seems like she's on good terms with her mom, and it's fine. But for me, I'm like, okay, well, then every time you have to bathe your mother or wipe her ass, a flashback of, like, that time that she rejected you for showing interest in mm -hmm. someone of the same sex is going to come back, come into your mind. Yeah. There's little moments early in the film where I think it's uh, when they first sit Deborah down for her interview. So there's a moment where an early key focal moment is Deborah loses her temper because a gardening spade has gone missing and they end up finding it, but it kind of hints, okay, there's something weird going on. Then the next big incident is that they discover her digging in the garden in the middle of the night and her fingers mm -hmm. are a bloody mess. This is when we see that she's levitated from the kitchen floor to the counter on the tape and, oh, what's scary it's going on yeah. but they sit her down for this interview and she is spot on polish she is wearing really nice clothes she's brushed her hair she looks great but she's nitpicking at sarah's clothes like she wants her to take off a jacket she asks if the checkered plaid shirt that sarah is wearing is her dad's mm -hmm. you know it's obviously lesbian coding where sarah is wearing slightly more butch style clothing but it's also an example of how her mother is making these probably unintentional references like oh why don't you you know dress more feminine and sarah's like because i'm a fucking lesbian mom like right. i'm gay <laughs> but then okay but here's the thing though so and we're of course we don't know this yet but you know she's sent to boarding school when she's 10 it could also be that this is around the time that she realized that you know mr desjardins is coming to kill her because yes. she like had her period recently yeah, it's either right around the time or maybe right after where she was like, I've just killed this man and now I'm sending you away or you're in danger and I'm sending you away. Right. But, but yeah. that's the thing, though, because it's possible Deborah wasn't even worried about the kissing thing. So mm -hmm. then we have this entire like relationship for Sarah that's been recontextualized because she thinks, oh, my mom sent me away because she saw me kissing a girl when in fact, oh, she was trying to protect me from an actual serial killer. Yeah, it's almost disappointing that we don't get that moment yes. of catharsis or confrontation even where Sarah actually gets to talk to her mom about this, right? Because by the time we learn that Desjardins was targeting Sarah, we're into that third quarter of the film. Deborah's completely Gone. lost her marbles and yeah. she's abducting girls out of the, you know, pediatric wing. Yeah. So I, I wish we could have had something more to that but i recognize that that would have delayed the horror stuff which is really in the film that we're meant to be watching 
And but that's the thing though, right? Like this is a smaller film from not a major studio, and it almost seems like it should have, it could have easily gone that way. Like if this if this was a Blumhouse film, I would understand. Oh yeah, they're gonna Happy Death Day it where they would get a passing mention of this, <laughs> and then that's it. And again, it doesn't hurt the film that I don't have it. But like if it was in there, if there was a moment like that of catharsis, mm-hmm. I can imagine this even ranking higher for me. Yeah, I I definitely think it would rank higher. And again, this is where we want to hear from our straight listeners. Is this something that actually connected with you? I do wonder if there was a little bit of resistance to say like, no, we don't want a gay coming out or confrontation scene because that's not this film. I almost wonder if Robitel was fighting to get some of this stuff in and then it was like, okay, but we're not making a gay horror film here, are we? Right. No, and that's the thing. Like, if you inserted more of that, like, it would be a quote-unquote gay horror film, you know? And interestingly enough, I saw a bunch of our queer connections on Twitter when I said I was watching this. One of the things that people did talk about is how much they like the fact that Sarah is gay, but it's not in your face. Like, she is just a queer woman Mm -hmm. who happens to be dealing with a sick mother and crazy shit going on. Like, the film doesn't stop to say, so, Sarah, talk to us about your girlfriend. Like, she has this one little scene. We get a passing mention to her being sent away at 10, and then the movie is moving on. Yeah. Some people seem to really like that. Like, this is a way to include queer people without bashing viewers over the head. Like, she's queer. Yeah. She's a big old lesbian. She's a big old lesbian. Yeah. But I I won't lie. I was eating moments up where she and Sheriff Tweedy were leaning in close to one another. Because I Man. was like, are you two flirting? Are you flirting right now? <laughs> I Trust me. And I wanted more from that Sheriff Tweed, too. God, that name. But, oh, I know. I loved it. But yeah, but the, I think it's like Linda. It's Linda Tweed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she calls her Tweedy when she goes into the cabin at the end, to which I was like, did you make out with Tweedy at one point? They've totally fucked before. Yes. But we don't really know because Tweedy dies immediately. <laughs> oh, God. <it> was... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just stick another lesbian back in the fridge. God damn it. Yep. <laughs> and listeners, if you don't know what fridging your gaze means, Google it. Yeah, it's... uh. It's sad. Yeah, I don't care. Wait, for it's it. fridging the girlfriend, but then it moved on to fridging your gaze, right? Well, it's bury your gaze. Bury your gaze. Fridging the... was like the act of killing like a man's girlfriend for a long time. And then yeah. bury your gaze was often about lesbian relationships in pop culture where it was like, oh, can we have these two women to be happy? No, one of them has to die. Yeah, there you go. TVtropes.com, y'all. Great website. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, 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 yep. Okay, so really there's, there's just a sequence of different kinds of incidents. There's stuff where Deborah is acting weird. There's wonky shit happening with windows. Dark men appearing in paintings. I do. So, okay, that, that stuff is what works most effectively for me is like finding the paintings with the black figure. Like that is super, because again, it's just relying on an image, you know, it's not a scare. Yeah. It's just a really creepy, creepy thing. The interview sequence where the, the one you just mentioned, like when they say, when they show her the footage, oh yeah, you were digging into the ground. The acting eye acting Mm -hmm. from larson is like oh you can tell that she knows something like she knows what she's doing (laughs) but she can't say it yeah even i think the fact that if we take the possession piece out of it she also knows that she is a murderer that she probably doesn't want her daughter at this documentary film crew to find out about so right in a way she's almost burying two secrets here right Mm -hmm. i actually didn't even think about because we didn't mention the beginning of the film yeah she says oh wait no i changed my mind i don't want these people here Mm -hmm. because yeah it's because she knows she has a body buried back there yeah like oh shit right i've got that sack of bones (laughs) decomposing over there by the angels of fountain oh god yeah 
And then Sarah, I guess, worked away at her for about a week and said, well, if you want to keep the fucking house, we're going to invite these people back in. And y'all, I am sorry to say this, but like when my dad got laid off from his job at 23 years and like they we had, they had to move, I was probably like 26, maybe 25, but they, they had to move out of their home and my dad got a job in Dallas. So they moved from Houston to Dallas. But I remember my mom taking my sister and I to like lunch one day when she came to visit us. And she like started crying like, in this restaurant because she was like, I just don't want you to lose your home. And I'm like, mom, right. like, it sucks. You're like, I feel no connection to this at all. Thank you. I mean, it's like I grew up in this house from like first grade to till I was 18. So like, you know, from the age of six or seven to 18 years old. So like 10 or 11 years. And granted, I guess I get it. Maybe if there's more of like, if she's had like generations of her family there, like she raised her daughter mm-hmm. there. But I'm never going to be like, oh, no, I want to keep the house. <laughs> like, right. I'll go live in an apartment. It's fine. Yeah, there's definitely a generational gap there, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but since I've lived as an adult, I have no financial stability to ever buy a house. And I've just moved from like apartment or condo to apartment or condo. So for me, it's like, this is a box in which I put my stuff and occasionally lay my head down to sleep. Renters for life. Renters for life. I mean, but if you had a house that had what? six different basements and attics maybe you would want to hold on to it too <laughs> there is some really good meta commentary from the the <laughs> the non-white cameraman in this movie that is pretty great that would be gavin yes gavin is a lippy motherfucker and i liked him about half the time and the rest of the time i was like shut up you're really grating no yeah but then he becomes he pulls a joel from scream 2 and just like hightails it out of there <laughs> Mm-hmm. Which I actually saw a couple of people remark on in their comments again, where they said, wow, a smart character who says, shit's getting weird. I'm getting the fuck out of here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about old lady nudity, because we do get a certain amount of it in this film. Yeah. Again, I mean, I use the word tasteful again. Like, I think for the most part, it's tastefully done. She's just sitting there on her switchboard, like, plugging away. <laughs> rocking out. <laughs> speaking French. <laughs> She was giving me a little bit of Phantom of the Paradise, yeah. Yes, it was real good. I also didn't notice this, but apparently in that scene, when the switchboard explodes, you get like a split-second glimpse of her final form that flashes on screen. I did not catch that. I read that fact afterwards. No. That sounds like one of those things where you have to go by frame by frame. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't have a lot to say about the old woman nudity. I think it's fine. I applaud Miss Larson for going there with this film i'm sure it's something they discussed Mm -hmm. beforehand obviously but yeah again so one of the things that strikes me so much about this film is that it's not a young person and there's something i'm not sure if unnerving is the right word yeah but no but it's like it's like a it's like a a frail woman who yes i know she's just naturally skinny it looks like but like who probably is not eating as well as she should Mm -hmm. and it's like kind of a gaunt figure you know and of course it exacerbates as the film goes on but yeah it's some there's definitely something a little bit chilly about it yeah particularly you've touched on it it's a good use of like hair and makeup to make her look visibly like she's deteriorating as the film goes on and then there's this physicality to larson's performance it's not as visibly obvious as say carpenters is in exorcism of emily rose like the film doesn't go for that kind of bombastic holy shit look at this kind of scene (laughs) can you imagine them bringing jennifer carpenter like hey look miss larson can you just watch her and do that (laughs) just to emulate this like can you basically break your back by bending over But I did appreciate, yeah, the nudity is tasteful, but when you see the frailty and the way that Deborah is moving, 
It's a great effect that works for both the kind of Alzheimer's sickness storyline as well as eventually the demonic possession storyline where you're just like, I'm getting a multiplicity of feelings right now. Well, and I imagine too, like forgetting to put on your clothes is probably an aspect that some Alzheimer's patients have too. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, yeah, it's... um. Like, there are those quote-unquote normal aspects of, like, oh, like, because, I mean, also this is a time where you could Google and say, oh, cool, like, Alzheimer's, like, symptoms or things that happen, mm-hmm. like, they could look at this. It's when they see her, though, like, teleporting to the top of the counter where you should be like, um... Mm-hmm. This is unexplainable. Yeah. <laughs> what is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> but, like, but like things like eating her glass figurines, like, that's also, like, super weird to me. But, like, again, like, I mean, that might be something that an Alzheimer's patient would do. Right, yeah. I definitely ended up seeing that more as a symptom of the possession at the end of the film, but at the time I was like, oh, this is just kind of like that Swallow movie where you maybe are eating things that you shouldn't be eating. Right. A very different reason. I don't mind that that, that conflation of like, oh, which one's possession, which one's Alzheimer's. It, it actually does to me make it a more interesting viewing experience, especially since yeah. obviously some of it you're like, oh, that's obviously the possession part. But yeah, mm-hmm. something like the eating the figurines, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't know. But do we need the answer? No. <laughs> it's just there. No, no, we don't. And I like the fact that there's the mention of exorcism once late in the film, but I was so worried that because this is a possession film, I honestly was waiting for the fucking father to arrive on the doorstep. You know, okay, let's set up some candles. Let's read from the Bible. Burn some sage. So <laughs> fucking happy to not get that. <laughs> yeah. No, but th- 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 this isn't, again, it's not a, a super meta movie. But yeah, there are things where I'm like, oh, these characters, most of them are making really smart decisions, like, given what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then we also get stuff like Dr. Nazir showing up after the near electrocution of the switchboard and saying, here, take Chekhov's short-acting sedative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, but okay. So I couldn't hear this on the switchboard stuff, but when they actually, because obviously the subtitles did it. They help. Yep. (laughs) The eternal serpent will free you, child. Be my fifth. I'll wash Mm -hmm. you in the river. Your blood will feed the river. Like, whoa. I literally just got chills reading that. (laughs) It's good. It's some pretty good stuff. I mean, even as the film, so this is actually the point where the film takes a kind of left turn and we start to go into Desjardins territory where, okay, we learn about this local pediatrician. He killed four girls. He was suffering from Lou Gehrig's and he wanted to find a way to live forever. So he was performing this ancient rite and it involved serpentine figures and snake venom. And you're like, oh, okay, holy shit. That's a lot. It's a Monacan ritual. Um, and I, again, I, I didn't do research into the Monacan tribe, but I still don't know how I feel about bringing in Native American rituals like this, but it's also like, oh, but it's the villain doing it. But then it's like, oh, well, then you're conflating a Native American ritual, well, which is an evil ritual, at least in the film. But it's a shitty white Canadian who's appropriating indigenous practices for their own self-serving purposes. Right, right. But yeah, I'm still just like, did we need this in here? Question mark in the year of our Lord 2014? Probably right. not. It, well, it, why not just be like he was doing satanic rituals? Yeah, like couldn't he just be a killer? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, and like having the bones buried in the, which also it's like, lady, bury it further away. <laughs> it's not even 20 feet from your fucking house. <laughs> like, you've got a whole woods back there. Use, use a the whole woods. woods. You've got a whole woods. <laughs> 
<laughs> you got the whole woods for the four bodies and the sack o' bones. <laughs> but like again, this whole sequence where they're scratching into the book and all that, like I, it's really fascinating stuff. It's mm-hmm. not really until later where I'm like, oh right, we're appropriating Native American culture. Um, which again, I don't even know if it's a real ritual. It may not be, or maybe it is. Who knows? I think it's mostly like, how can we get some cool? snake related stuff into this okay this will work yeah and i love the snake shit the snake shit's good more snakes they look real i don't know if they are but they certainly they they are they are they but they are all garter snakes oh because they some of them look like black mambas (laughs) they apparently originally shot there's one scene i think the one that you talked about liking where deborah actually holds the snake up they mm-hmm. apparently were gonna try to get a bigger sort of thicker snake but uh it didn't end up working out <laughs> but they yeah, did have I mean, you know snake wranglers on set to make this happen by all means i love me a snake yes you love to wrangle a snake <sighs> i know where you're going with that but it's the really obvious joke so i'm not going to give you the satisfaction of a laugh <laughs> I mean, I got it from the listeners, so I don't even need it from you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so now we're at like day 45, and she pukes earthworms, and the doctors are like, she probably has DID. I loved the disdain. (laughs) That one guy is trying so hard to rationalize what is going on, and Sarah's just having none of it. (laughs) Sarah's a very compelling protagonist in this film. It's awesome. And watching her deal with these fuckers... (laughs) And it's about this point in the film where, again, it doesn't go downhill for me, but it's just kind of a barrage of tricks, like a typical found footage slash possession slash found footage possession movie tropes. Yeah, because we're, you know, we're starting to dig into things. We're fine and shady, mysterious goings on. You know, Deborah is taking on increasingly erratic behavior. She she starts to become less of a character and more of a old hag horror fixture at this point. Mm -hmm. And Which it's is okay. It's it, yeah. She looks appropriately scary. Like it works. But yeah, yeah she, you're right. It, she's just a figure. She's not a character anymore. No. So Gavin bails after Harris shoots up the minivan, and that's our introduction to Sheriff Linda Tweed. <laughs> And uh, the big sort of ramping up into the end of the film happens on day 47 when Deb abducts a little girl, Kara Minetti, who is played by Julianne Taylor. And she takes her to an abandoned wing. And I ask you this, Trace, why does a hospital have an abandoned wing with no lights? <laughs> I have the same question. And I put I put in my notes, they find her in dot 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 the freezer question mark. <laughs> yeah, it looked like she went maybe to the morgue. That was the best I could think of. But I was getting some pretty heavy Blair Witch vibes from this. No, I, I agree. But then like when the whole end of the movie is like, oh, it's going to the mines where he performed the ritual. It's like, maybe like he doesn't have complete hold over Deborah yet. So like she mm-hmm. was still like keeping him in the hospital i don't really know again it it seemed unnecessary because it's like oh you're just doing this to like i guess build up later you honestly could have cut this and just like had the first instance of this kara girl be when she actually kidnaps her probably the big thing is to see that kara is not afraid of her which is also fairly unnerving but we get a repeat of this when they actually find them on the road because kara doesn't try to run away and she's actually saying no he's a nice man gotcha i agree with you it's definitely setting up the back part of the film but it probably 
doesn't have to be here. Well, and it's also because this is when she starts freaking out and they have to strap her down to the bed. And yes. so I guess this is when we're like, okay, well, we have to strap her down because she's going out taking all these this cancer patients mm-hmm. <laughs> to, <laughs> to abandon wings of the hospital. <laughs> Maybe amp up the security a little bit in this here hospital because you're allowing old ladies to just wander free and kidnap children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Sarah and Mia track down Dr. Schiffer from the River Rouge documentary, and this is where we find out that there are spiritual parasites who prey on the weak of mind, and they figure out, hey shit, we should burn some of them their bones if we want this possession to be over. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, uh, but also, now we're bringing in African tribes <laughs> into the backstory. <laughs> mm-hmm. Here's an extended piece where I'm going to lay out pictures of this black lady who nearly killed herself because she was so consumed by grief. And you're just like, oh, no, just no. (laughs) Thank you, no. Yeah, I mean, I get it because it's like a foreign concept. But then, of course, yeah, you're going into, okay, well, foreigners are scary because shit like this happens. So it's just like a, I get why you're doing it, but it still leaves a bad taste in my mouth. It's an uncomfortable exoticism where you're just like, oh, that's so weird. Yeah. Because it happens in like... Africa. It's like, One day, oh, it's just going to be a white know. man who's doing it. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's going to be like, I'm sorry. In this case, it is a white man who's doing it. But like, like it's like when they when they bring in that old archival footage, it's like, oh yeah, this white man. I don't know. He got possessed in some white person ritual, and they killed it by burning the bones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a white person ritual. <laughs> Let me tell you about this crazy thing that was happening in the year 2020. It was what we called a tribe of Karens. It was white ladies who would congregate at parks and they would demand that they could like hang out with their children they had crazy practices what are you referencing my god really (laughs) the internet has coined all of these idiots who are like covid deniers karens i have no idea what you're talking about (laughs) wow okay that joke could have hit so hard that's okay um i'm sorry um oh my god you're so right (laughs) no stop it's too fake i don't like it Basically, just the internet came up with what is like the most white lady entitled name we can see. And for me, my my Karen association is the Dane Cook sketch, where it's like the one friend in your group of friends that no one else likes. It's it's Karen, and so you're like, oh, Karen's just a fucking bitch, and she walks up. Hi, Karen. What's up, Karen? How you doing, Karen? Oh, she's like a fucking cunt. (laughs) So it works in both cases, then. (laughs) It does. It does. Um, If your name is Karen, I am so sorry. Or if your name is Karen. Don't be a Karen. Don't be a Karen. Make your yeah. friends like you. Exactly. And take COVID seriously. And there we go. <laughs> so on day 60 is when Harris attempts to suffocate Deb at her request. So we know that she's still slightly cognizant of what is happening. But at this point, she knows that her body is being taken over. We are firmly out of sick territory. And we are firmly in position territory at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we so are. So he gets zapped the television explodes no it it like it like shoots off of its stand it's whatever and just like hits him in the head (laughs) okay i was like i don't quite know what happened here it's pyrotechnics of some kind and he got injured (laughs) yeah and again it's this paranormal activity thing where it's like oh the camera is like you know fixed to the corner of the ceiling and it's the Mm -hmm. same way in the stairwell and it like you know rotates back and forth which i mean wow for that equipment right but yeah it, it all feels very paranormal activity which I mean, you know, this is coming a year before the final, for now, Paranormal Activity film, so the tropes are worn out by that point. 
I think that was part of the issue that I had with this back half of the film is that I didn't mind that we were doing more of the traditional found footage stuff, but it didn't feel like it was offering much new. And because so much of what I had liked about the first half of the film was that character work, and it really feels like at this point... Deborah is gone because she's possessed and Sarah has been not cast to the side, but she's been crowded out by some of the more theatrical stuff. And I think if the end of this film had were like, again, we've been harping a lot on like the tropiness of the end of this movie. It's not like it's a constant barrage of stuff, which is why it doesn't bother me as much. Like if it was just a constant like, oh, this particular found footage trope, oh, this possession trope, oh, this one and this one and this one, I would be mm. more bothered by it. But because it's, for the most part, I think the film holds it back a bit. Yeah. I'm okay with it. Yeah. Like it's interesting to see, okay, we've shifted from the house almost to this weird hospital drama in a way. So that does keep it feeling interesting and a little bit fresh. It's more the stuff when they like they return to the house because they find out, oh yeah, Sarah was going to be the fifth victim. And we did stab this guy in the neck with the gardening shears and then we buried him alive. So you've got to go find those bones and we get this whole sequence. It works where they have to go up to the attic because they see the stain. They find the bones. It's very stinky. They try to burn it. They get like blasted back. They see a shape in the window. It's all fine. Yeah. I did like a third goddamn attic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Louis is having none of it. He doesn't want to go first just because he's got the fucking camera. I've never heard of a place having more than one attic. I've literally never heard of this being a thing. No. The only thing I could think of was if the attic had been cordoned off so there were separate Entrance stairwells points. to get into different parts of it. But right. I'm like, well, why would you do that? I don't understand. Like, maybe it's a Virginia thing. People, yeah. let us know. But yeah, so we get all this, yeah, this scene with all the bodies, the, the burning body and whatever. I mean, sorry, the non-burning body. Mm -hmm. There's like a quick flash of someone in the house that yes. looks like Deborah, but I, I didn't pause it to see. I thought it was a man. Okay, so maybe it's supposed to be Desjardins. I think so. Also, did you for a hot second think that Mia was going to go up in flames? Because she gets a bunch of lighter fluid on her hands. Yeah. And then she like reaches in really close to spray more because she's freaking out. Uh, you're not getting enough on there. And I just totally expected her to go up in flames. I agree. But no, we have to have a moment later where she confesses her not alzheimer <laughs> grandfather. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to lie to you. It's like, Jesus Christ, Mia. Not it's me. the wor <laughs> uh, uh, worst timing in the world. Like, the worst. <laughs> yeah. Because basically at this point, okay, so we've burned these bones, we think, but not really, because it hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. So apparently, <laughs> this is the other part. I love that apparently they did go back into the house and they did grab these bones because they get a call that Deborah has escaped once again from the hospital. We do get a degloving scene as she pulls the skin off of her hands so that she can remove it from the restraint. Yeah. Chef's mm -hmm. kiss. Really good. But uh, yeah, so they, they congregate at the hospital. They find out that that same little girl has been attacked. The dad is like, can someone please guard my daughter? <laughs> Which, okay, but also the thing with, I mean, I don't want to talk too much about women's periods, but. Oh, really? I'm here for the next half hour. I guess you're supposed to be nine. <laughs> well, because I'm like, I mean, I, I say, oh, that's really early to have your period. Because again, the whole point is like, that this girl must have just had her period. That's why she's the fifth victim. Right. And I'm like, well, my sister would kill me. But yeah, my sister like had her period when she was nine. So I guess that makes sense. I think once upon a time, it was 13, 14, 15. And then over the last couple decades, it's become increasingly younger and younger. So before 10 is apparently 
kind of common. Sexualization of children in the media. Blame it on that. Ugh, gross. Mm-hmm. Not a fan. We'll Not a fan. That way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do love that they say that she stole a Corolla, and I wanted to be like, how? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, she jumped this burly-looking security guard. She bit him on the neck, mm-hmm. apparently, and then she managed to steal the car. Yeah. You go, Deborah. You are killing this possession game. Yeah, either she or Mr. Desjardins knew how to hotwire that car. Or maybe the cop, it's the cop's car and he had the, whatever, it's not important. Yeah. So they go to the mines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did love the scene when they try to like, when they're trying to, like, when they're just standing there and they're trying to get the girl out of her hands. Mm-hmm. That was a very well done suspenseful set piece that you're just waiting for something to happen and you know it's going to happen, but like the build up to it's so good. And I definitely did not expect her to spit snake venom yes! into a police officer's face. I uh, I love it. Had she actually, I mean, I know she kind of becomes a snake person in this movie, but had she become like a full-fledged, like, giant snake, this might be a five-star movie for me. <laughs> I think that might have been a bit much for what this film was trying to do, <laughs> but I appreciate your enthusiasm for large snakes. Yes, I love it. And that was not a sex joke, but if you choose to take it that way, by all means, laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically at this point in the film, men are done. Yeah. We do not need any more men for the climax of this film. Thank you, gentlemen. Go home. Male officer and Louise go back to town, which leaves Mia and Sheriff Tweedy and Sarah to chase after Deborah and the little girl. Sheriff Tweedy is immediately killed. <laughs> and off screen, which again makes sense because it's a found footage film, they sure. find her body, and I, I don't really know what's happened to it. But yeah, she's just dead. That's it. I thought. Had she been shot, but then I realized, no, the shot had gone out the window. Yeah, and... like, I think she shot at Deborah, but then, of course, yes. Deborah probably attacked her and, like, snake ate her or something. Yeah, we see the body, and then we gotta move on, because we gotta get down into them dare caves. We gotta crawl over some snakes. At this point, we are so firmly into the asshole of found footage films that you can't see a goddamn thing. And the descent, because then we have this night vision sequence. Which, yeah, and I mentioned earlier, but I'm just saying, like, the person with the syringe, that was the word I was looking for earlier that I could not get, um, they should have access to the night vision camera, because all we have is we have Mia holding the camera pointed mm-hmm. at Deb and Sarah, but Sarah's, like, waving around, yeah. <laughs> trying to figure out, okay, where is she? And I'm like, wait, wait, are you going to grab her first and then stick her? Because you really should just stick her immediately, but you can't do that because you don't have the fucking camera. Yeah, it looked like a community theater reenactment of Silence of the Lambs, and I was not here for it. And see, I was going, you're right, that makes more sense. I was going for the descent with, like, the cave and whatever. No, I mean, I think they're both accurate because they're in some motherfucking caves right here with some night vision, so tip to you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Uh, Tip of the snake team. What? Yeah. Uh, So at this point, this is where we get the money shot, ladies and gentlemen. So we see that Deborah is hiding behind some kind of stalacolite and... Stalactite? That too. I've been drinking. (laughs) Stalacitite? Yeah, stalacitite. Um, Okay, so... It's the name of my rock band. I don't, I don't know. You can keep this in if you want. But Andrew's been like going back and rewatching all of RuPaul's Drag Race like from season one. Oh, Yeah. He just started season four, and the first episode, they have to do a post-apocalyptic thing. And one of the queens keeps saying, like, post-apocalypta, because they don't know what post-apocalyptic means or how to pronounce it. Oh, God. I worry about the education levels of some of those queens. I mean, some of them don't have much, you know? No. Which is maybe good, because we're actually seeing that on television, and it's like, hey, you can make a life for yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Um, so coming back to yeah, this sorry, scene, this money though. shot, this this amazing snake shot. Yeah, so Sarah more or less rounds a corner and we see Deb lit up in full light for like the first time in a very long time. It's been a lot of jaggedy camera motions, a lot of like blackout moments. And so we finally see Deborah and Kara for the first time in a little bit. And Deborah basically has unhinged her jaw and she has half of this girl's head in her mouth. It's the only moment that I could spot of, like, real CGI, but because it's, like, of the way it's filmed, it, like, it doesn't look mm-hmm. bad, like, it looks good. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it is something that I never thought I would see in a film. Absolutely not. It is shocking. It is genuinely shocking. It is. And, and that, that you'll walk away from this film, no matter what you think of it, at least remembering that, like, that, mm-hmm. to me, is the mark of at least, maybe, if not a good horror film, then at least something that's effective, that, like, oh, without yeah. this, would people be talking about it as much now? Probably not, but because it's a gifable moment in today's internet age, oh yeah, mm-hmm. for sure, people know this movie. It's a great, memorable shot. It almost made me wish that this right here was the end of the film. It goes on for a little bit more, like we lose her again, we have to find her again, we eventually sedate her and burn the we burn the and all that shit, and it's fine. But really, yeah. like, after this... I was like, you're not topping that. No, but then we have to get a Gerald's Game coda where... <laughs> yeah, we do. <laughs> and granted, I don't I don't hate the idea because it's short, but it takes focus away from Deb and Sarah and puts it on mm-hmm. this girl in what I'm assuming is a sequel tease that we'll never get. Yeah. I will admit that the last shot of the film of the girl smiling, I did find legitimately chilling. Mm-hmm. Yep. I got, like, freaked out, like, in the middle of the day watching this movie and watching this girl just smile menacingly at the camera. Yeah. But, yeah, we don't get, like, yes, okay, we know that Deb is alive. She was deemed, unf- like, they couldn't try her because of her mental state. And, like, she, she's still deteriorating because she still has Alzheimer's, yeah. which I'm assuming, too, that the way it's left is whatever progression the disease had under the possession, like, however fast it accelerated, it didn't revert back. No. Which I appreciate, like, it's mean, but it's also true to life in that way. Like, I hate horror films that walk back like, oh, all these people were cocooned and then they came back and they're completely fine. Like, in this film, Deborah has become much more sick. And just because you want her to be better because the possession is over, the film is like, no. And, but again, compare that with Mia and Evil Dead, where she goes through all this shit and then buried alive, oop, back to normal. You know, but yeah, different in that film because we're not dealing with the same kind of a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I do wish we if, if we're going to get a coda, I would have rather have something more with Sarah and Deb or at Me least too. like seen yeah. seen them together. You know, we, we, we don't even, I don't even think we see Sarah again and we just see Deb getting rolled out of the hospital. So I'm saying Deb because I have Deb in my notes because I was tired of writing Deborah. <laughs> Fair enough. And a lot of people call her Deb, so it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, then we get. Yeah, it's just this sequel tease of this girl who is now inhabited by the evil Desjardins. And at first I was like, okay, wait, the original ritual was to make him immortal mm-hmm. by killing... And this these... is how he's immortal, is he's moved on to another body. Right, because his body doesn't exist anymore. So yeah. I'm to understand it as to, like, had it happened when he was alive, like, oh, he would have just been immortal in his body. But because he's dead, the rules have changed, I guess. <laughs> or maybe the fifth body was always going to be the one that he moved into. Part of what Maybe. I kind of like is it's it's a little bit of It Follows, right? Where because they went to Dr. Schiffer and he told them about these other people who did this one thing, they just randomly thought that it was going to work for their situation. There's no actual suggestion in the film that what they're doing is the right approach. 
So mm-hmm. I kind of didn't mind that we don't have clarity about what actually happened. I think at the end of the day, the film hadn't really thought it through maybe that much. And they were kind of like, hey, sure, he's now in this kid. And that's a cool, creepy way to end the film. Yeah. But there's something about the fact that this film ends on a bit of a mean note. Would I have rather had it focus on the relationship between Sarah and Deb or even have like something about like Mia wrapping up this documentary? Like, it feels like we just kind of trail off a little bit. I was honestly expecting some kind of final title card that says, and, you know, Mia wrapped it up and she ended up selling this or something. That's my conundrum, though, is that, okay, if you're going to spend time like doing a coda, why are you doing it on this new character that we don't really know that well? And particularly when horror films that end with a creepy, ooh, the possession has jumped to somebody new and maybe this is a setup for a new film. Again, a dime a dozen. I don't really care if maybe he's in this little girl or if we get a second film. I'm saying we also have like this weird, gross concept of this like 60-year-old man in a 10-year-old girl's body. And honestly, The Prodigy, if we had a sequel to this movie, it would be The Prodigy just with a gender flip boy. Right. Spoilers once again for The Prodigy, which we've talked about so, so many times. So many times. (laughs) Maybe we should just do an episode on The Prodigy. I literally was sitting here like, we did an episode of that, right? But no, we just talked about it a lot. Yep. Hey, if you want us to talk about The Prodigy, let us know. But yeah, no, that's the end of the film. Again, this held up really well for me. I liked it more on a rewatch. I don't want to watch it a lot, but like, yeah, I would still recommend this to someone. If someone says, hey, what's a good possession film or a good found footage film? I'd be like, oh, Mm -hmm. there's not a lot of ones that I love, but this one is actually really good. Yeah, wholeheartedly. I would 100% recommend this. I'm not surprised in hindsight that so many people have latched onto this. I think it's because it's not just doing something that's a little bit new and fresh and different, but it's actually treating its characters. It's dedicating a lot of time and energy in this first half to making you care about this mother-daughter relationship and presenting these as sympathetic figures that you care about. So when the shit does hit the fan, Mm -hmm. you feel something for these two. And I like that. I like that a lot. Like, I like horror films that make me care about the fucking characters. I 100% agree. And to the point where even, like, the Alzheimer's, like, even though it's obviously a major factor, like, I don't feel like it's using the Alzheimer's as a crush to be like, well, this is why you should care about these characters. No. No. But yeah, well, that'll wrap up Deborah Logan. Right. On that note, I think we can cross out the taking of Deborah Logan. Yes, and cross out Horror Queer's Patreon. You've made it to the end of another bloody disgusting podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more.